Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Triumph of the Kingdom of God, with a message entitled Tribulation. So turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Daniel chapter 11 is one of those difficult passages, and I'm going to only do a brief survey of the chapter. See, this chapter is a prophecy in which Daniel in great detail describes a future event. Now, as I've said in this study, many of the events that Daniel describes were in the future, but they're in our past. Remember that Daniel's describing these things in about 536 B.C., And the events he describes, to some extent, come to their culmination in about 165 B.C., about 150 years later. Now then, a great many modern-day Bible readers, you know, our eyes glaze over as we read about, you know, the king of the south, the king of the north, about a daughter, about someone making an alliance, and on and on it goes, prophesying about events that are now in our distant past and in another part of the world that we know nothing of. Now, let me suggest three important reasons why we should study it today and therefore be interested in today's study. You know, first of all, you know, there are more than 135 explicit prophecies in this chapter which have been fulfilled and can be corroborated by a study of that period in history. You know, as far as I know, there's no piece of literature in the world that even comes as close to being like Daniel 11 since no human being can know the future that specifically. Well, the author must be God. He controls the future. That alone tells us we ought to pay attention. You know, secondly, Jesus referred to Daniel 11 when he was speaking about the second coming. Matthew 24, 15 and 16, Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, Matthew adds, let the reader understand, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. See, Jesus expected his followers to read and understand Daniel 11. He believed that knowing this chapter would provide necessary information about the time that was close to his day and also about the coming great tribulation. You know, a third reason why this chapter is important for people to study is this chapter is a mirror. You know what a mirror does? It's on one side of the room and it reflects something that's on the other side of the room. And this passage is a mirror about past events, yet it reflects something that's going to happen in the future or on the other side of history. And the Bible warns us that there is a great day of evil coming. You know, in Daniel 9, Daniel spoke of a period of years that would lead to the crucifixion of the Messiah. And then he left a seven-year period of time that would yet come to pass. We also call that the Great Tribulation, and some of the events described in chapter 11 are an anticipation of the great day of evil that yet lies ahead of the human race. So Daniel chapters 10 to 12 are one unit in the book of Daniel. They record the last of a series of visions that Daniel saw, and so these chapters contain a description of the drama of spiritual warfare. They tell us there's a great invisible war going on in the heavenlies between angels and demons and the effects of demonic evil being felt in the earth. And as I indicated, we will not be reading this entire chapter, but we're going to read some of it. I begin with verse 2, and remember the angel speaking with Daniel. And now I will show you the truth. 
Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Well, that in fact was literally fulfilled. The three kings who came after Cyrus were Cambyses, Smyrdas, and Darius. The fourth king was King Xerxes, who reigned in 486 to 465 BC. That king was also known as Ahasuerus in the book of Esther. And history teaches us that he was wealthier than his predecessors. History also teaches us that he gathered together an army of one million men who created terror everywhere they went and subdued virtually all of Greece, reducing the city of Athens into ashes. The book of Esther teaches us that this man almost set off a plan to annihilate the entire Jewish race and so prevent the coming of the Messiah. So you would see that the war in the heavenly realms really does have ramifications on the earth. Now to verses 3 and 4. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Well, the ruler that is mentioned here is clearly a reference to Alexander the Great of Greece. You know, the Greeks eventually defeated Xerxes. Alexander rose to power and died unexpectedly. He had two sons who were heirs to his throne, but both of them were murdered and the empire was parceled out to four pieces and taken over by four of his generals in exact fulfillment of this prophecy. Then verses 5 to 20 form the next section of this chapter. We're not going to take the time to read them, but they do tell the story of two of the four generals and of their political divisions that made up the Greek empire after Alexander. They are the story of the kings of the south and the kings of the north. The kings of the south refer to Egypt since it's south of Israel, and the kings of the north refer to Syria, it's north of Israel. And in many ways, the relationship between the Egyptians and the Syrians from the period of 322 to 165 BC was like the relationship between the Hatfields and the McCoys. You know, there was intrigue and deception and all-out wars. But interestingly enough, Israel was the beautiful land that lay between them, and hence, the Jews became the battleground for those two competing powers. Both sides were determined to spread Greek culture throughout the world, but their methods varied. The Syrians were cruel and violent toward the Jews, while the Egyptians were open and accepting. You know, for the most part, the Jews were governed by the Ptolemies, or the rulers of Egypt. Ptolemy II commissioned 70 Jewish scholars to translate the Old Testament into the Greek language, and many Jews also chose to live in Egypt, especially in Alexandria, which became the center for Jewish intellectuals. But the effects of Greek culture was beginning to erode away a Jewish religion. You know, Jewish young men became involved in a Greek institution called gymnasium, an athletic and a cultural center that involved nude participation in sports. And for that reason, some Jewish families chose not to circumcise their children lest they seem to be different. Even Jewish priests were leaving their duties at the altars of Israel and becoming spectators at the games. And everywhere one looked, the Jewish religion was becoming liberalized and was losing its distinctive character. That was Satan's seduction. 
And I would argue that in the Western world today, this same program is underway right now. But then came a remarkable change of events. Gabriel describes this in great detail through a series of devastating battles between the Syrians and the Egyptians in which the Syrians emerged victorious, Israel came under a new rulership. They came under the line of Syrian rulers named Antiochus. The benign gradual decline of Jewish worship was about to move to a period of sheer terror. You know, this set the stage for one of the darkest hours of human history. You know, it's fair to call Antiochus IV the Old Testament Antichrist, he was. Now, have you ever wondered what might happen to us if the same set of events happened? You know, North American Christians have had it easy for a long time. We're not being persecuted. If there's any danger we face, it's the danger of being seduced by our culture. You know, as one example in the past, all Christians were at church every Sunday morning and night and participated in instruction at various levels throughout the week. You know, today, most churches have only one service, and many Christians feel even that's optional, especially if your kids are playing sports. But what if the choice was not going to church versus going to the beach, but rather going to church as opposed to going to jail? What would you choose then? Remember, I began this message by saying that chapter 11 provides us with a mirror of past events reflecting what is yet to happen. And I'm of the opinion that the final world ruler will surprise many like that. He'll go from a benign, liberalized society to brutality. Let's find out what happens next. Verse 21, in his place shall arise a contemptible person whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So following the reign of Syrian rulers came the most murderous of them all, Antiochus IV. Gabriel the angel calls him a contemptible person. Antiochus took upon the name Epiphanes, which means a manifestation of one of the Greek gods. The Jews called him Epimenes, madman. Skip ahead to verse 25. And he shall stir up his power in his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceeding great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plot shall be devised against him. So that verse tells us how Antiochus invaded Egypt, and he did meet with considerable success. Life Again, a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, has had a profound impact on so many lives. Well, this fall, you can embark on an exciting and encouraging journey as Laugh Again presents our new 31 Days of Hope and Humor devotional, and it's available right now. I know we can all use a reminder of the hope we have in Jesus, along with the words of encouragement that will inspire a smile on your face. Each of us has experienced the unexpected turns of life, perhaps in these last months more than most. Yet, even when life is most challenging, we're assured that our relationship with Christ will sustain us, offer us joy and assurance. So take a moment and request your free copy of Laugh Again's 31 Days of Hope and Humor devotional at backtothebible.ca, laughagain.ca, or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. I'm reading Daniel 11:28, And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart 
shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. See, after plundering Egypt, the king returned home by way of Palestine and found an insurrection in progress by religious Jews to rid themselves of Syrian influence. And Antiochus responded murderously. History tells us that Antiochus put down the Jewish rebellion by massacring 80,000 people in Jerusalem. He looted the temple and filled Jerusalem with crosses. Yeah, he crucified Jews by the thousands. One can only imagine how terrified the Jews were. The suffering was indescribable. Verses 29 to 30. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. You know, Antiochus led a second incursion into Egypt. The ships that are referred to here refers to the Roman fleet that absolutely humiliated him, and he returned to Palestine in the foulest mood possible. He knew the Jews hated him and were no doubt happy that he had been beaten, and so he decided to punish them. And so he made it illegal for the Jews to practice Judaism. Look at verse 31. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. The temple is called the fortress because the Jews were using it as a military fortress. And Antiochus stripped them of any power they had left, and he banned circumcision, and the possessing of scripture was banned, and the practicing of any Jewish feast. He then set up an altar devoted to Zeus. He built it in the temple, and he sacrificed pigs on it, and even went into the Holy of Holies and rendered it unclean. That's what Daniel calls the abomination that causes desolation. Antiochus not only killed and persecuted Jews, he took away their most holy symbol and reduced it to something unclean and vile. What would you do if your faith were treated like that? What if it was a crime punishable by death to own a Bible? What if it was a crime to share your faith with someone else? What if it was a crime to go to church? Now you see what Israel felt like. They were at the point of crisis, and yet, in spite of the horror of persecution, God delivered his holy people. Verse 32, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. See, for three years, an armed guerrilla warfare broke out in Jerusalem. A priest by the name of Mattathias led a revolt in which he killed the officer of Antiochus, who was responsible for idolatrous worship. Then Mattathias died, but his son Judas succeeded in driving all Syria out of Israel in December 16th, 165 BC. It's Hanukkah. When Jews light candles at Hanukkah, they celebrate that the darkness of the oppressor of God's people has fallen and that God's light was again allowed to shine. You remember that I began this lesson by stating that the events of history is like a mirror reflecting events yet to come. In fact, the whole earth is awaiting another man, very much like Antiochus. We should read this history closely because Jesus predicted this very event in the last days. So let's go forward to verses 36 to 39. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. 
He shall pay no attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. You know, Bible scholars are divided about how to interpret this passage. Is this still a description of Antiochus or of someone else? There are a number of reasons why the things described in this passage can't be applied to Antiochus. I mean, first of all, Antiochus worshipped the gods of his fathers, but in verse 37, it says the person will not. Secondly, Antiochus, even though he took upon himself the name Epiphanes, did not regard himself above all gods. In fact, he still worshipped Zeus. Thirdly, Daniel 12 ends this section by telling us that when those final events are over, there will come the resurrection of the dead. So I assume that this refers to Daniel's 70th week, or the last seven years of history before Jesus returns and is proclaimed King of kings and Lord of lords. Look back to Daniel 9, 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. See, back then I argued that this last week or the last seven years that Daniel mentioned are waiting to be played out at the end of the age. Just like Antiochus, there is coming a wicked king who is inspired by Satan. Jesus said that Satan came to kill, steal, and destroy, and that will be the intention of the final earthly ruler in the history of this planet. Before the end comes, demonic activity will grow to a fevered pitch. John described that in Revelation 9. John saw that in the last days, demonic activity would be felt as never before, And when you think about it, it's staggering. Imagine hell opening up and pouring out the putrid stench of the home of demons. I can only imagine how much demonic activity there was at the time of Hitler or Stalin or Mao, as millions were being killed, but this is more. There is coming a persecutor of God's people who will make all others seem but a faint shadow. This will happen because of the release of multitudes of demons from the abyss. They are satanic champions who lend their power to the last Antiochus. Daniel called him the the little horn. Paul called him the man of lawlessness. John called him the Antichrist and the beast. Listen to what Jesus said, Matthew 24, 21 to 22. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and never will be. Listen, how does Daniel describe it? Daniel 11, 36 and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. Now that verse would indicate that the Antichrist perhaps will even be an atheist. You know, that description seems to be in keeping with 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God. Isn't it interesting that whereas Antiochus only set up an altar to Zeus in the temple, this man will set up himself as the altar of worship. Daniel goes on. He will say unheard of things against God. 
Some of us are not accustomed to that. I mean, we do understand that some people may hate the church and they may even hate Christians. We even understand that some people curse using the name of Jesus. I mean, they may not believe in Christ, but they do respect him. Antichrist will not. I want you to listen to what some of the God-haters have said about Jesus in the past. Friedrich Nietzsche, the German atheist, called Jesus the God of the sick, the God of spider, the God on the cross, and the God of the weak. He argued that the law of evolution mandates the survival of the fittest and that Jesus wanted to be the God of the lesser advanced forms of life. He argued that human civilization could not advance to the next stage of evolutionary development until it did away with Jesus. Or listen to what Sir Alfred Ayer, professor of philosophy at Oxford University, wrote in his magazine, The Guardian. He said, there's a strong case for considering Christianity as the worst of all religions, so why so? Because it rests on the allied doctrines of original sin, he said, and vicarious atonement, which are intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. One thing remains. He will fall at the very moment that God appoints his downfall. Antiochus was never in control. God was. Hitler was not in control. God was. Even Antichrist, with all his demonic power, will never be in control. God is. Let me ask you the question. Is your hope built upon the shifting sands of this world? Or is your hope rooted in the thought of seeing Jesus face to face? I want to encourage you, come what may, put your trust in Christ, for God controls all things. Thanks so much, John. You know, I think it would be interesting for you to clarify for us Hanukkah. What were the Jews celebrating? Yeah, Hanukkah is so important, and, uh, you know, we should really, as Christians, know it well. It is the celebration of light. Uh, The Jewish people were under Syrian domination. Antiochus had made it illegal to practice their faith. Uh, They were being butchered in mass and uh, they mounted a resistance movement. It is the story against all odds in which the time of the Maccabees, uh, the Maccabees drove out the Syrians and for a period of 100 years after that, Israel maintained their own homeland. So that's Hanukkah. It's a reason for celebration. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us tomorrow for our final message in the series, The Triumph of the Kingdom of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible Teaching you can trust. I Will Tell. This is a series where Dr. Neufeld focuses on the theme verse and a command found in Psalm 78 verse 4. In it were compelled by these words, I will not hide the great deeds of the Lord which he has done in the past from the next generation. This popular series provides you the tools and incentive to share the gospel. It will help inspire you rather than guilt you into action. It reminds us that we each bear responsibility to intentionally share the truths of the gospel, the God of the Bible, his deeds, and his provision for all those that believe. This month, we're excited to offer this entire series on CD for anyone who would ask our gift to encourage and inspire. Ask for a copy of I Will Tell for yourself or even pass it on to a friend. 
All you need to do is visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.